This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Was typology merely a development of the early church, or does it actually have deep Jewish roots? In his recent book, Marking Typology, Jonathan Robinson shows how typological modes of thought were a significant part of the historical and cultural background to the earliest canonical gospel, Mark. He examines a surprisingly consistent typological approach across four dramatic miracle stories in Mark. Tune in as we speak with Jonathan Robinson about his book, Markin Typology. Jonathan Robinson is adjunct lecturer at the University of Otago in Cary Baptist College, New Zealand. Jonathan, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Jonathan, tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book on Markin Typology. Right, well, I'm a pastor and you might have picked up from the accent that I'm originally from the United Kingdom, but I'm now living and working in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, I was uh, preaching a sermon series on the book of Jonah at the church I was working for at the time. And as I was studying uh, chapter one, um, I was really struck a number of Jonah commentaries pointed out the similarity between Jonah being asleep in the, the, the bottom of the boat and Jesus being asleep in the boat in Mark chapter four. And as a preacher, I just thought this was a wonderful connection to make. And I went to the Mark commentaries I had on my bookshelf and none of them mentioned it. Um, now, I've since realized that was just the case of the commentaries that I had, the selection of commentaries I had on my bookshelf. But at the time, I was really struck. Why Why the Jonah commentators seeing this beautiful connection, but the New Testament commentators not seeing it? So I was really struck by that. And um, it became a sort of line of inquiry that eventually became a PhD proposal. Um, so it's really a, a sermon that got out of control, a sermon preparation that got out of control. But it became a PhD and what I found out, yes, there are some New Testament scholars that see Jonah uh, imagery in, in the calming of the storm in Mark chapter 4, but there's lots that just say no. And there, there didn't seem to be any rigor in the argumentation. It was just a matter of the scholars' feelings or hunches or, or you know, it was really a very old judgment call with very little, you know, um, behind it. And so w- one of the things really was, can we make this conversation more robust? Can we bring some more uh, clarity to our methodology. And because and, I really wanted to win this argument, I think that we must see Jonah in, in, in Mark chapter four, but how do I win that argument with, a, with, with you, know, you know, very uh, worthy scholars who just go, no, it's, that's too tenuous. It's, you know, you're reading stuff into it. So anyway, so, so that, that's basically uh, what started. And I guess the other question was, what else am I missing? Because I'd, I'd never thought of that before reading Mark. So what else was I missing? So what happens when we look for these illusions? And so there's those two lines of inquiries. How can we talk about these illusions in a rigorous way? Um, how can we demonstrate that they're, you know, more than just my feeling about when I read the passage? And also, um, what else are we missing? What else can we find if we look for that kind of stuff? So that's really what the book came out of. You refer to Mark's use of Old Testament stories in his narration of Jesus' ministry as literary typology. Would you explain what you mean by that? Right. 
Um, great question. So, so in, in the book, what I try and do is, is be really precise about what we're talking about when we're talking about typology. And literary typology is, is very much only part of uh, the picture. So literary typology is what we can locate in a text and see how an author has sought to, lo- sought to connect his text to a previous text um, or a character in his text to a character in a previous text through literary textual means. So things like uh, specific choice of words, things like narrative, distinctive mar- narrative motifs, um, you know, all that kind of thing. So it's really a literary technique to make a connection between two things. So that's a literary typology. But what's important, I think, when we're reading the New Testament is to realise those literary typologies are pointing us or revealing to us a real typology that exists in the mind of the author. So it's not that the author is just doing something clever and going, oh, look, I can reference Jonah when I'm talking about Jesus calming a storm. But the author really believes there is a connection between these two. He's making a theological point. Um, He he believes um, that... By, by making these literary connections, he is not creating something new, but he's pointing us towards something that's already really there. And another example of a different sort of typology is lived typology, um, where people consciously imitate scriptural figures. Um, so we know this happens because we can read the historian Josephus and we find figures like the, 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 uh, the, the Jewish sign prophets who self-consciously went out um, to recreate miracles uh, from scriptural history, miracles from Israel's past. And now most of them didn't get to do it. They got murdered by the Romans before they got to try to, uh, you know, separate the waters waters of the Jordan or to make the walls of Jerusalem fall down. But we can really clearly see people tried to imitate biblical figures. And so there's a lived typology as well. And so we don't have to, when we discern a literary typology in a gospel story, we, and what's tended to happen is that scholars who discern these typologies then jump to saying, well, the story is a fiction because it's based on, on this liter- literary connection. But that, to me, is a, is a completely unfounded jump because there's no a priori, a priori reason why the typology couldn't already have been present in the event because people did behave like this. They behaved typologically as well as wrote books typologically. In chapter 4 of your book, you develop the use of Jonah typology in Mark 4, 35-41. Give us a summary glimpse of that material. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so again, as, as I've already said, the question for me, I found this connection really intriguing. The idea that Jesus was somehow fulfilling Jonah's ministry. Um, and that there was this connection between the two figures. I've always loved the book of Jonah. And so to then read it, try and read it in connection with, with, with the gospel was really rich for me. Um, but what, what the que- one question is, how do I prove a connection? How do I prove this connection here? And when I began my research, I thought I was going to have to get really deep into literary theory. I was reading Roland Barthes and I was looking at narratology and I was getting really out of my depth. And, and, and I thought I was going to have to make all these complex arguments about the structure of the narrative that it must have been. Um, you know, based on the narrative. And I think there's some work to do there. But what I found was when I just stopped and slowly read the texts in, in Greek and in Hebrew, that actually Mark had got there before me and left me some breadcrumbs. And it was much easier argument to make. So, 
So here's the thing. One of the key methodological things that I, I tried to bring is that we don't just look at words. And, and this is something uh, I think New Testament scholarship has been guilty of in talking about allusions. We make a list of words, and then if there's enough words and they're interesting enough words, there's a connection. Whether or not there are other things that reinforce that connection. So, so here's an example. And one of the words that Jonah 1 and Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41 have in common is the word apolumi, to perish. And, um, you know, if we just look at that, that's not a very significant connection. But if we look at the exact point at which that word is used in the narrative, we realize when the captain wakes Jonah up, he says, don't you care that we perish, apolumi. When the disciples wake Jesus up, they say, don't you care that we perish, apolumi. And so we've got a, a reasonably specific word but it's not just the word, it's the way it's used in, in, in the same narrative moment. And so to me, that's a much stronger connection than just noticing the word. So that was the, that's the sort of first breadcrumb we find in the story, that, that apart from the, the very clear narrative motif of a prophet asleep in a boat, which, you know, is pretty distinctive. But so we have that word. But then um, there's, there's this phrase, when the disciples um, are rebuked by Jesus, they are ephobophasan, phoban, megan. And, and, and they're afraid with a great fear. Now, what's interesting, that is the, there's lots of fear in Mark's gospel. There's lots of people being amazed and afraid. But that's the only time that phrase is used in Mark's gospel. So it's, it's, it's distinctive in Mark. But if we read the Septuagint, what we find is that the only place we find that particular phrase, afraid with a great fear, is guess where? Jonah chapter 1, and it comes twice. So twice in Jonah 1, we have this particular phrase, which doesn't appear anywhere else in, 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 in the scriptures. And Mark uses it in telling his story about Jesus calming a storm. Now, that could be a coincidence. It could just be Mark, um, you know, trying to sound biblical by using biblical phrases. But it happens in a point of the story that is exactly parallel to the point of the story in Jonah. When, when the mariners in Jonah chapter 1 realize who the Lord is that, that Jonah is running away from, that he's not just some guy or some minor deity, but he's the creator of heaven and earth, then they're afraid with a great fear. When the storm is stilled, then they're afraid with a great fear. That's Jonah 1. When the storm is stilled in, and the disciples look at who Jesus is in Mark chapter 4, they're afraid with a great fear. So to me, that is well beyond the realms of coincidence. What we're seeing here is an apparently, and obviously we're, we're limited in how much we can look into the author's mind, but we're seeing an apparent deliberate use of language to link these stories and create this literary typology. Uh, and of course, the final thing to say um, is that What's the significance then of the fact that in Jonah, the mariners are, are afraid with a great fear of the Lord? And in Mark, the disciples are afraid with a great fear of Jesus. So we've had this connection between Jesus and Jonah, but there's an, another typology, which we've got to hold loosely because we won't want to jump to conclusions. Um, there's another typology between the Lord and Jesus the Lord of the Scriptures, and Jesus. So, so that's where it gets really interesting, I think. The seventh chapter of your book is titled Shepherd, Moses, and Elisha Typology in Mark 6, 30 through 44, 
and 8, 1 through 10. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, so, so the sort of heart of my thesis is this exegetical work on, on four miracle accounts. So I look at I look at the calming of the storm and then the two miracles uh, or the two miracle accounts in, in uh, uh, Mark chapter 5. So there's a, the casting out of legion from the Gerasene demoniac and then there's a healing of Jairus's daughter and the woman in the crowd. So there's a sort of sequence of, of miracles in Mark um, where I find a very consistent approach to typology, where we really get one uh, scriptural story very strongly alluded to and alluded to consistently throughout the story. And and, and I, I just think, and obviously I'm convinced by my own argument, not everyone will be, but I just think it's, it's very compelling that there's been this consistent um, approach and that we can see in each story the same kind of thing happening, the same sort of lexical clues, the same sort of narrative, uh, uh, you know, connections and, and, and things going on. But in uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and, of course, the feeding of the 4,000, uh, the typology is different, but it's still close enough that I think we see similar techniques and similar ideas but um, it, it takes it in a different account. And it's also complicated by the fact that we have two stories that are very similar. And, and so one of the problems I try and address in this chapter is why do we have these two very similar stories? Um, does looking at um, scriptural typology give us some insight into what Mark is doing with these stories? So what I argue is that in the feeding of the 5,000, uh, there's three uh, complementary scriptural typologies present. So... Uh, the first one is that of Elisha um, feeding the prophets in, in 2 Kings chapter 4. Um, there's a sort of more general scriptural typology of the, sh the shepherd. So, for example, Psalm 23, but also, you know, many other shepherd passages in Ezekiel and elsewhere. And then there's a specific uh, scriptural uh, typology, again, of Moses from Numbers 11, the manna in the wilderness. And, and, and I, I can't go into it now because we don't have time, but the following that line of thought just blew my mind that some of the sneaky things mark has put in there and what's happened in the history of scholarship is that we find a funny word in in, in mark's gospel and we think it's because mark's greek is not very good that he's chosen such an odd word to use um so jesus has the crowd sit down in 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 garden beds or in beds of leeks and 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 the, and the scholars we know we translate this as rose because it's the images of a garden bed and, you know, so people are sit, sitting in rows. But, but something amazing is happening there. I think that is a, a very, very clever play on words referring us back to Numbers 11. But you have to read the book to find out more about that. But it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's this sort of thing that I think we've just missed because we haven't been looking for it. Um, so that's, that's in the feeding of the 5,000. So each of these typologies, much like what we've seen in the previous miracles, connect Jesus to a human figure. But then as you read the narrative, you realize that points in, in, in Mark's narrative where uh, the Lord should be doing something, um, it's actually Jesus who does it. And, and, and so we, we get this double typology that Jesus is connected to a human figure, but also being connected to the Lord of Israel of the scriptures. Um, so, so we get this, this, the Christology sort of continues to build in that way. And then in the second feeding miracle, a lot of the things that connected to Moses and that connected to the shepherd have been taken out. So the stories 
you know, the, the story of, of, the, of the next feeding miracle is told very similarly, structurally, but there's a lot of bits missing and a few bits added. And, um, and what I think this is about is, is I think we've, we've got a, a new scriptural allusion added in there to Joshua 9. And it's about the theme of Gentile inclusion and uh, Jesus' Jesus's mission, and not just being to, to feed, feed the children of Israel, but to also feed the Gentiles. Um, and so this isn't just an argument about a specific scriptural allusion. It's an argument about the whole flow of um, the narrative uh, from Mark chapter 6 to Mark chapter 8 and, and the message that Mark is trying to get across to us about Jesus' ministry, uh, first to the Jews, but then also to the Gentiles. Would you give us now some of your conclusions as to why Mark's gospel uses these literary typologies? What is the Christological statement being made? Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm, this is probably the question I've struggled to think of how to answer the, the most because um, it's complicated. Because we, you know, um, those of us who, from a church background, we're used to thinking of things in a certain way. And then what I found in the, in the scholarship is, is we've sort of got two main options. We've got a sort of uh, Borkham's approach, Richard Borkham's approach of, of divine identity, where we see um, a very clear um, sort of connection, Jesus equals God. Um, and whereas um, we have uh, Daniel Kirk's, approach which is more to see um you know a a uh, idealized human figure and that we so we have these these paradigms um that we've that we've worked out from earlier jewish literature and we apply them to the new testament texts and then we come out with one answer or the other you know what, what do we do we see jesus as just another you know idealized human figure from the past maybe a, a more supreme one but still uh, very, very much within that paradigm, or do we see Jesus as as being, you know, divine? And 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 what I think that does is it it pushes us to a place where Mark isn't trying to answer. He's not a- answering those questions. He's not asking those questions. Um, so so to, the the attempt then is to really try and get to the bottom of what where is Mark going with this? What's he trying to say? And um, I'm not sure I've fully got to the bottom of that. I've obviously only been looking at a small part of Mark's gospel, um, maybe an eighth of, of the gospel I've really covered in, in, in detail. And, and so there's, there's maybe more, more to say here. But the, the image I found really helpful is, and, and thankfully it's a, a biblical image, so hopefully people can, can get hold of it. The image I found helpful is, is from the parable of the tenants in Mark chapter 12. So in that parable, we've got this only son figure. And, and the son is both a type of the slaves who've already been sent to, 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 the, to the vineyard to ask for the, for the rent. Um, so he's both a type of the slaves. He's sent to Israel and suffering abuse at the hands of the, the tenants, like the prophets before him. But he's also a type of the father, his own flesh and blood. So in, in the parable, we, we, the son is kind of a, a new figure that's both like the slaves, but also like the father, because he's the father's only son. So the son of the parable is a more authoritative and complete representative of the father, because while he performs the same function as the slaves, he more perfectly fulfills the role because he more perfectly manifests the father's image and authority. So Jesus is a type of the prophets who've gone before, but unlike the prophets who have gone before, he is also a type of the father, the God of Israel, who sent them. So the double typology of the parable's son 
is exactly what I think I've found in the miracle accounts. Um, so questions of pre-existence and divine identity are really underdetermined by Mark's text, but there's still a really sophisticated theological agenda. Mark portrays Jesus as the one God's unique and final human representative on earth. From the point of view of Mark's Christology, questions of pre-existence, divine identity, or celestial ontology, they're not really material for him. That's not what he's interested in. It's exegetical, it's not philosophical. It's narrative, not propositions. It's typology, not ontology, that Mark is interested in. So for Mark, it's not that Jesus is included in the divine identity so much, but that he represents God to such an extent that it is as if the God of Israel has gained a human identity in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Jonathan, what's next on the horizon for you in terms of research or publications? Um, well, that's a good question. I've just started a new job at Kerry Baptist College in Auckland, and um, it's really my dream job, and I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, and um, because of that, I now have some expectation and, and time to actually you know, pursue some research, whereas um, having been working as an adjunct and a pastor for the last few years, I haven't really had time to take on another project since the PhD, not a big one. Um, so I've definitely got a few more things around Mark's use of scripture and typology. Um, I had an article on um, on Gethsemane and Jonah's gourd, so a bit, I do enjoy working with Jonah. Uh, that came out in uh, Journal for the Study of the New Testament Oh, a year or two ago, and I've got uh, something coming out on the Transfiguration and the Angel of the Lord in Exodus, which I think is really good fun. Um, I won't convince everyone, but it's a really fun, fun article, and that's coming out in uh, Horizons in Biblical Theology, hopefully uh, this year. Um, longer term, um, I think there's definitely more to do around um, Mark and Christology, and I'm wondering about uh, bringing in some... Uh, some different avenues of, of uh, inquiry into that. Um, yeah, sort of uh, maybe some cultural anthropology to back up my um, literary kind of typology work. Um, I think there's some interesting connections there, but I, I've, you know, I'm really very much at the, the beginning of that. Um, yeah, so hopefully, hopefully more to say yet on, on, on Mark's gospel. Jonathan, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for being with us. Thanks. Really appreciate the opportunity and your time. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.